Inside Chicago Government. Welcome to another in a series of interviews with Ben Jarofsky. I'm Dave Gloetz. Ben Jarofsky writes on government and politics for the Chicago Reader, and he's here with me today. How do you feel, Ben? So far, I'm okay. I'm a little <laughs> worried, though. Not that I don't feel your pain, but I don't want to share your pain. I'm not in pain. He's been sick lately, ladies and gentlemen. Only physically. Today, we're talking about your article that appeared in the Reader way back in April, on April 25th, 2013 titled, Welcome to U.S. Cellular Field. Oh, that article. Thank Home you. Home of the Sweetheart Deal. Been on my mind, that story, yes. That story is about a federal lawsuit by Ms. Perry Ermer, former executive director of the Illinois Sports Facilities Authority, which owns U.S. Cellular Field, which some like to refer to as Sox Park. I like to refer to it as Sox I notice sometimes sports writers like to refer to it yeah, as Yeah, I like to refer to it. The reader changed it to sell, I suppose. They didn't want to confuse people. And in that lawsuit, Ms. Ermer claims that White Sox head Jerry Reinsdorf managed to get her ousted from her job because she was trying to improve the amount of revenue that the park would generate for taxpayers at the same time making it somewhat less lucrative for the White Sox. So do you go to Sox games? Well, yeah, I used to go all the time. I don't know if I made the confession in this article. I've made this confession many times. First of all, I'm a lifelong sports fan, but in particular the White Sox. In high school, I was a member, a founding member, if you will, of the White Sox fan club which was one of the geekiest, nerdiest things I've ever done in my life. I've been a fan of the White Sox long before Jerry Reinsdorf was, that's for sure. When's the last time you were at a Sox game? Ah, good question. I believe I went to one last year, but don't quote me on that. I did too. I have this pattern with a friend of mine. We go in September. Nobody else is there. It's cold. They lose. They've already lost. It's really a mediocre team, but I still follow so They them. got a great deal on a stadium. Oh, my God. If they were as good at playing baseball as they are at... Cutting deals? Cutting deals with the idiotic people who are protecting the fiduciary interests of the taxpayers, they would be perennial champions. Give Jerry Reinsdorf credit. He cut one hell of a deal in the gifts that keeps on giving with the state of Illinois. Uh, and the city of Chicago. Let's talk about that deal. Yes. It's detailed in Ms. Ermer's suit. That is correct, Senator. The deal between the White Sox and the state of Illinois. Yes. And according to the detail provided in the suit, which I happen to have. Did you read the suit? Yeah. It's an interesting suit, isn't I'm it? I'm waiting for the movie. It should be pretty good. It's more, um, how do I put it? It's, it's more dramatic. Dramatic, than yeah. yeah the it's most. less legalese. Less legalese. I would urge all of our listeners to run, 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 and read the suit, because it's, I think, very uh, enlightening about this particular aspect of how our government works. And listeners, you can read the suit by going to the description of this interview at shygov.com. There we go. And the deal is as follows. The Illinois Sports Facilities Authority paid 100% of the cost of building cellular field. That's all of it, people. Some of the math people might there. 100% is all of it. <laughs> <laughs> and it comes to about 167 mil. And then pays 100% of the ongoing improvements, which is an, another sort of equivalent amount. Wow. And then the Sox got to play in that field rent-free <laughs> for the first 18 years of their lease, which was until 2008. And then thereafter, they've paid, starting the first year, $1.5 million per year. And then yearly increases tied to the consumer price index. Oh, <laughs> 
And I, I'm sure they have accountants scrutinizing <laughs> that one. How much do you have to add those two numbers together to get a total construction cost of over $300 million? Am I correct? Close to 400 yeah. Yeah, close to $400 million to build and change the thing. Remember, they had to rebuild it after they started it or change it because nobody wanted to go there because the seats were high or whatever. And then rent-free, now they pay a negligible amount of rent. And the third part, which you haven't mentioned yet. The third part is they pay a percentage of ticket revenues, which is based on a formula the fee kicks in after they sell slightly less than 2 million tickets per year. Which they didn't do Which last they year. don't do. Yeah. And finally, no property tax because it's state-owned. It's state-owned. It's state-owned. They don't pay property. So they don't pay property tax, which you listeners do pay property tax, whether you realize it or not, because even for a renter, they pass it on to you. That's why this name Sweetheart keeps coming up. No, it is such a sweetheart deal. And then the final piece with the state was thinking about developing the land that's just north of the ballpark, just across 35th Street for the ballpark. The White Sox somehow or other got Governor Thompson, who was the head of this stadium oversight board, to agree to have you, the taxpayers, pay to build them a restaurant, which they get all the proceeds from you, the taxpayers, get nothing. So you built them a restaurant. I was at, you know, I'm just on a total tangent here, Dave. I was at a uh, restaurant, which I will not name, and the owner came up to me and thanked me for writing the story and then started betting my ear about how much he pays in taxes, how much he pays in rent. And here the White Sox are getting complete free, no overhead. That is an outrageous sweetheart deal, the whole package together, but in particular that restaurant. It wasn't like we gave them enough. We had to give them a little more. The Bacardi restaurant across yes, the street. I wasn't going to give them the shout out uh, publicity. And all our listeners, of course, will race right over there now <laughs> that they know the name of it. I want to come back to uh, former Governor Thompson in a minute, but just continuing from Ms. Perry's lawsuit, she describes when things may have started to go bad. Reading from her lawsuit, the facility management plan was only Perry Irmer's first step towards reforming the relationship between the authority and the White Sox. In or about May 2005, at a meeting of the ISFA board of directors with White Sox management, including Mr. Reinsdorf, the authority proposed the idea of amending the management agreement to require the White Sox to begin paying rent. So it wasn't even in the cards until that point. The proposal was rejected because the White Sox insisted that the, quote, no rent, unquote, provision of the June 1988 management agreement must remain intact. Shortly after that board meeting, the acting chair of the authority, who had raised the start paying rent proposal, was replaced Mm -hmm. with an interim chairman who was a law partner of former Governor Thompson. Shortly after the White Sox won the 2005 World Series, former Governor Thompson became the new chairman of the authority. And Ms. Ermer alleges that Reinsdorf exercised influence in these personnel changes. So let's talk about former Governor Thompson. He's one of the central characters in this in this yes. drama that's outlined in the lawsuit. A couple of things about his past. He was the head of the audit committee for Hollinger International, former owner of the Sun-Times, during the time that Hollinger had Conrad Black did the deeds that put him in prison for mail fraud and obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another notable part of Governor Thompson's resume is he helped defend former governor and convicted felon George Ryan in Thompson's capacity as a senior partner at the law firm of Winston and Strom. Is there more about Governor Thompson that our listeners need to know? (laughs) I don't know. That's quite a mouthful you just gave there. Although I will say this, George Ryan's entitled to defense, as, as any defendant in this country. I think actually one of the more, if I could use this word with Governor Thompson, one of the more noble things he's done is he's remained uh, loyal to Ryan uh, long after Ryan was imprisoned and had lost all his clout. So I give him credit 
for uh, remaining loyal to his old friend, the governor. Um, so loyalty counts high in your book. Governor Thompson uh, went from becoming governor to becoming what they call a rainmaker for his law firm, which means uh, he's the person who brings in the business. Even though he got his start many, many years ago when you were just a lad at Weber High, he was a federal prosecutor. So he actually addressed juries and handled trials. He, of course, doesn't do that anymore. In fact, he was the U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Illinois. That is correct, Senator. And so he's a very obviously a very intelligent guy and a very capable lawyer, but he has done a horrible job, in my humble opinion, as the fiduciary overseer of the public's interests regarding sports facilities, particularly the one in Sox Park. And he should not have been allowed to oversee these contracts if he was incapable of standing up to Jerry Reinsdorf. By his own admission, as the quotes in my article, he was incapable. He felt as though he couldn't push Reinsdorf. He allowed Reinsdorf to set the terms of the agreement and didn't even show much of an attempt to negotiate. He just said, well, Jerry wanted the deal, and so we, you know, Jerry's a very tough deal maker, or whatever the quote is. Jim Dormat Thompson. Yeah, so I feel as though if he had pursued the interests of the taxpayers the way he pursued, oh, let's say, Otto Kerner's conviction, Otto Kerner being a governor, a Democratic governor from long, long ago, ladies and gentlemen, we might not have such a lousy deal. So in this way, he sort of epitomizes everything that's wrong with what happens when our overseers... Uh, negotiate with powerful, uh, rich guys. We saw it happen with Mayor Daley and the parking meter deal. We're seeing it happen again with Mayor Rahm and the parking meter deal. Public, you're being fleeced. You vote for these guys. You continually vote for these guys. And then you're surprised by the outcome. The White Sox Park thing, Dave, I just find beyond ironic for many reasons, but one of which is that, of course, the Cubs are just completely incapable of getting the same kind of arrangement as the White Sox. I would go so far as to argue that the White Sox could not exist in a really free market because there's no market for them here in Chicago. They're basically being propped up, as far as I could tell, by the largesse of the taxpayers with these great deals they're getting. It would be interesting to do the math, right, to see if they could make a profit without the huge subsidies exactly. that we've identified. We couldn't do that, obviously, because the numbers are concealed from the public. It's a private enterprise, so we don't know how much money they make, you know, what their dollars and cents or take is and their TV contract, their radio contract, money they bring in from selling odds and ends in the ballpark. There's an investigation there. I would say this. The light went on. It takes a long time for the light to go on. A couple of years ago, there was articles in the in the newspapers. Why aren't more people going to White Sox games? And there were all these theories. You know, it's on the south side, supposed to the north side. The stadium is not as nice as Wrigley Field, et cetera, et cetera. And then I realized, well, the White Sox don't really have an incentive to bring people into the ballpark. They have to pay more. Though. Yeah, they, <laughs> they have to pay more to the state. <laughs> they cutting their profits. Yeah, so it's sort of like you know it's. It's working great for them. Why do they care if people So when up? you see these billboards, because after the World Series, we saw a bunch of billboards in the 2006 season, and I believe in the 2006, yeah, you know, in the last few years, yeah. promoting the White Sox at the beginning of the season. And so they were doing some marketing. Yeah, they do. I know it's very strange. It's really bizarre. They do marketing, these promotions. Their promotions, their promotions are so <laughs> ironic, I suppose is the only word, because I've seen their ads, and it's always working-class guys who are extolling the virtues of an Italian sausage with onions that they make in their garage or something like that. And in reality, the beneficiary of the White Sox are these like, fabulously rich people who, you know, working people can't really afford to go to a White Sox game, you know, but whatever. They're keeping that link alive. 
to this like working class South Side you know, legend, and uh, which bears no relationship with what the White Sox have become. The rich guys. Let's talk about the rich guys. Going back to Ermer's suit, Ermer seeks compensation for damage to her career and her earning potential, and compensation for infringement on her free speech rights because she spoke out repeatedly about the lack of revenue that the state was getting, the taxpayer was getting from this deal. Her suit also seeks punitive compensation from Reinsdorf and Thompson for what she alleges is their misconduct. If Reinsdorf, in fact, persuaded Thompson to lean on the ISFA board and Ermer and cause Ermer's firing, shouldn't that be prosecutable? I don't know. I really don't know the answer to that question. I'm not a lawyer. I'm certainly not a federal prosecutor. We won't quote you. Yeah. I can most definitely assure you that Reinsdorf will not be prosecuted for this matter. The real issue in terms of this case is will she survive the attempts by Reinsdorf and Thompson to have the case thrown out for some technicality, which I'm sure are being prepared. Those motions are being prepared as we speak by a battery of really sharp lawyers. So I didn't get talked to Ms. Ermer. I called her, both of her lawyers, and they made it clear to me that she was not going to be talking to any press people. And they didn't offer much in terms of comments either. One thing they did point out to me is that they expect the first, well, almost a year, I'd suppose, of this lawsuit's life to be all about beating back attempts by Reinsdorf and Thompson to have the case thrown out. If it survives those attempts, that's when we really get down to the nitty-gritty. And we'll see, you know, that's when depositions will occur, and we'll see whether she could substantiate her allegations. So there's a lot of rich material in there. There's even a chapter to this case that deals with Rod Blagojevich and his former top aide, John Harris. One of the allegations she makes is that Reinsdorf used his influence with Blagojevich's administration to have her removed. It'll be really interesting to see if, as a result of this lawsuit, they depose Governor Blagojevich. Have to schlep out to where is he in Colorado or wherever he is. Uh, yeah, then we can see what color his hair is, too. Yes, that would be one of many of the collateral <laughs> benefits of this lawsuit. All right, that's all we've got time for. Ben, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, sir. Listeners, we welcome your questions and comments on Facebook and Twitter. Search for Inside Chicago Government. You can subscribe to automatic downloads of all of our podcasts by going on your web to shygov.com. I'm Dave Gloetz. Thanks for listening.